Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Hey, if you are an avid listener to Theology in the Raw, a regular listener or a new listener or an old listener, would you consider supporting the show through Patreon? Uh, Patreon is a platform that allows artists. I guess I'm an artist. Am I an artist? No, I'm a podcaster. It allows artists and podcasters, apparently, to get supported by their fans so we don't have to like advertise and do commercially stuff and all that all that stuff. So if you want to support the show for as little as five bucks a month, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and you get stuff in return like once a month, Patreon only podcasts. If you support the show for $10 a month, you get a, a monthly podcast and a monthly blog that only my Patreon supporters can view and listen to for $25 a month. You can get two Patreon only podcasts and um, and the blog, and and it just goes up and up from there. If you support it $100 a month, then I'll name my next biological kid after you. How's that? Um, if you don't want to support the show, that's totally awesome. This is a free show, so listen up for free. That's awesome. But if you want to support, that's patreon.com forward slash the Okay, let's stop. My guest on the show is Drew Dick. That's D-Y-C-K. And yes, I did get clarity on the pronunciation of his name. It is pronounced Dick. And with a name like Preston Sprinkle, I'm allowed to um, clarify names because, um, yeah, I'm often having to explain how in the world I ended up with a name like Preston Sprinkle. Drew Dick is an editor at Moody Publishers, former managing editor at Leadership Journal. His work has been featured in USA Today, the Huffington Post, Christianity Today, and CNN. Drew is the author of Generation X Christian, which is a fantastic book. I read that a few years ago. It's how I first got a hold of uh, Drew's work. And Yawning at Tigers, a book I haven't read, but just the title alone makes me want to read it. He lives with his wife, Grace, and their three children near Portland, Oregon. You can connect with Drew at drewdick.com or follow him on Twitter at, 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 not at, at, but just at, at sign, Drew Dick. Drew has recently released a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, which is a fast, I haven't read the whole thing, I've read parts of it. It, it, it truly is remarkable. If you are one who wants to like, flourish as a human, you want to improve your living, you want to break bad habits and construct new habits, you want to get closer to Jesus and become more holy and sanctified and less self-righteous, whatever. You want to become a better person by the power of the spirit, by the blood of the cross, but also you want to incorporate good habits in your life to help you become more like Jesus, then this book is a fantastic read. So please welcome to the show for the first time, Drew Dick. And we are here with uh, Drew Dick. Drew Dick is, uh, well, you already know who he is, because I talked about him in the intro that I haven't recorded yet. So, <laughs> so why don't we just jump into it? Uh, Drew, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. It's I'm, I'm in the Northwest, as you know, Yeah. and it's actually sunny right now. Really? We don't have sun. Yeah, that's a big deal. Wow. That's a big deal here. So we, we soak it up. Why don't we jump in? Why don't we just start with the book, man? Because this... So I, I got to let you know, I got this book in the mail and the title is Your Future Self Will Thank You. 
subtitle secrets to self-control from the bible and brain science i had been thinking about this for about six months before i think your publicist sent me a free copy of your book wow because and here's and maybe we can just kind of get into it but um i've been doing a, just a little bit of study not i mean just paying attention to kind of the the de- developments in neuroscience and how you know certain habits will rewire your brain and you'll you can create like neuro circuit pathways is I don't know if that's the right phrase but you can correct me you know like if you right. do something over and over and over in particular like ad- addictions or things that release certain endorphins or whatever like you can almost rewire your brain to where you're not a robot you still have a will but that will is I mean being countered by this force if you will that that's just outside of your raw will and it's it's how we understand addiction much much better now. Now, when I look at the Bible, I see sins that are just blatantly committed, and you should stop it. Like, don't do that. But then there's language of like being enslaved to sin, you know, where it's almost like you Ooh. have this outside force that is that you're that you're enslaved to. And and, and I'm just I'm, I remember noticing just those those things. And I'm not one to say like, oh, the first century writers knew more about neuroscience than we do. But it is <laughs> fascinating that there seems to be some really some some interesting resonance between how the Bible talks about human nature and what we now know from brain science. That's the extent of my knowledge. So I don't know no. if I'm completely out the lunch, but anyway, when I saw your book, I'm like, wow, somebody actually pursued this. This is so cool. So that's your softball. Go ahead and take a swing. Yeah, no, I think you're right on. It, it is interesting. Like when it comes to sin too, um, a lot of people think of, of sin as just a volitional thing, right? Yeah. Uh, you sit there and you, you have two options and, in front of you, you have the proverbial devil and angel on your shoulder, and you listen to the devil and you you do the sin. Um, and actually, I think that's maybe how sin is to begin with. But then, like James talks about the progression, right? When sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Yeah. So there is a point at which it become it moves from being volitional mm-hmm. to becoming enslavement, right? After a while, you don't have a choice. And it is interesting to me, at least, as you look at the literature on habits yeah. about how <laughs> behavior becomes. Um, less volitional as it becomes ingrained in a habit. Huh. Uh, and so and a big takeaway for me, you know, when I was reading some of the literature on habits and neuroscience and when it comes to behavior was just how powerful habits were. And it was a little bit difficult for me because I'm a theology nerd, you know, I am big on knowledge of God. Yeah. I think it, I still think obviously it's incredibly important. It's foundational, mm-hmm. what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the, the truth is, often we have a hard time translating what we know um, uh, about about biblical truth into the action in our lives. Yeah, yeah. And and often I think we underestimate how powerful those habits are, um, whether they're good or bad. So we have this we have this belief in our heads, and we're even maybe inspired to live the Christian life a certain way. But then on Monday morning we go to do it, and yeah. it falls apart apart often because we default to old habits. Yeah. So that's yeah, and and as you probably know, Jamie Smith and others have talked a lot about this. Yeah, um, how important it is to pay attention to the habits and and the ways we're being conditioned, not only um, by spiritual disciplines but by the culture mm-hmm. at large. Um, and so I did a lot of reading in those areas and found it very beneficial for my own. I was going to ask you, life. how is your work or what, you know the driving this book related? I was going to say Jamie Smith's work and also Jonathan Haidt. I, I know you cited his work. Um, right, the the elephant and the rider, which which when I understood that paradigm, it just revolutionized the way I think about behavior, why people hold to the views they do, even even how we approach like, in as much as it's good for me to change somebody's mind or persuade somebody toward 
what I see is the truth, like how to go about that. The whole elephant rider paradigm just like, it, well, in a sense, it, it validated how I was intuitively already going about things. I, I realized that people, yeah. they just, they will believe what they want to believe and kind of analytically fill in the gaps later. And that's almost exactly what he showed on a psychological ground. But anyway, for those who are not familiar with Jamie Smith and maybe Jonathan Haidt and, and others who are saying the same thing, can you give us a, a kind of one-on-one, you know, summary of, of uh, what Jamie Smith's talking about, what Haidt and others are saying? Yeah, sure. With, you know, my apologies to them for uh, oversimplifying their ideas, I'm sure. But yeah, so Jamie Smith talks in, in his book, You Are What You Love. I'm going to forget the subtitle. Uh, but yeah, he, he talks about the, the spiritual importance of habit, basically. And he addresses what I was just talking about. And that is this idea that we were kind of um, going back to Descartes. We have this view of the human as sort of just this giant brain, right? And, and I think therefore I am was, of course, his uh, famous dictum. And it, it kind of, it, it shows this idea that we overemphasize, at least in, in Jamie Smith's view, yeah. the value of what we think, right? right. And, tr and when it comes down to it, we're often formed by what we do and our loves, which um, are things that have to be conditioned and trained. And this is going mm. back to Augustine, right? right. Um, we have to pay attention to those. Um, and, and it is sobering because really, when you look at the pattern of your life, I mean, you can say, okay, Jesus is Lord, I believe this, you know, and, and just check off all the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. But here's where the rubber meets the road, right? It's when you look at your life, you know, how are you living? Are right. you serving others? Are you, are you loving God, and, you know, in concrete ways? Um, and, and, and so it, it's, it was a, so, a sobering read for me. Jonathan Haidt, I think you're talking about his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. That's right. Yeah. That That's one and then right, the, yeah. the Righteous Mind. And The Righteous on, Mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And The Righteous Mind. I just actually finished reading that. Yeah. I don't get into that in the book, but brilliant observation. He says, we're all basically we're not rational creatures. We rationalize things, right? We have these beliefs for the most part. And then what we do is we use our, our incredible minds and our logic to justify ourselves. Um, and I thought that's such an important insight. And really what we're driven by is the desire to belong rather than seek for truth. And that's fascinating to me because wow, in yeah. ministry circles, we always talk about, oh, we need to reach seekers and people are out there searching for truth. No, they're not. <laughs> It's garbage. No, I'm serious. Like, I mean, you know, once in a while, there's someone who's like super rational. And they're like, I'm just after the truth. Yeah. But most people that stumble into the church, if they even do, right, they're, they're looking to belong. They're looking for friendship. They're looking for meaning yeah. in their lives. They're not on some sort of um, purely intellectual quest to find some holy grail of truth. Anyway, um, then when it comes to his metaphor, which I love about the elephant and the rider, to really oversimplify things, he's saying your rational mind is like a rider, a human, on top of an elephant. The elephant are your habits, mm -hmm. right? And so you can you can help your habits a little bit, kind of like an, an, a rider on an elephant can tug on the ear of an elephant and make him go left or right. Yeah. But for the most part, the elephant does the hard work. It just keeps lumbering along, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how habits often are in our life because by definition, it's a, a habit is something that is unconscious. Right? Yeah. We, we just do it without thinking. Um, and so we need to pay more attention. We paid a lot of attention to the rider. We probably need to pay a little more attention to the elephant, mm -hmm. to those habits that we just kind of operate. I mean, this is a silly example, but I was at a restaurant recently and the waiter's going around the table, coming to me. And I honestly was like, okay, I'm going to order a salad. I'm going to order the salad, balsamic vinaigrette dressing. Came to me, I ordered a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> Like, I was like, what? I was honestly surprised myself. Yeah. Hold the, the lettuce, no is, lettuce. Get the tomato, no lettuce, no tomato. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want any semblance of a salad on the thing. Um, 
And the reason is, I've been to that restaurant many times and I always order a burger or something unhealthy, right? <laughs> it's incredible how powerful habits are in shaping our behavior. So how, yeah, so what, um, how do people get out of that? Like, so, so they're in that moment and I could absolutely resonate with that. I don't know how many times I had this just plan to yeah, eat healthy or, you know, burger, no fries, side salad. And it's like burger, extra fries. Can you bring me some ranch? You know, guys, the fries <laughs> need more, you know, saturated fat, but, um, yeah. So in that month, is it just, cause it, you're not saying there's no volition involved. Is it just our volition? Our will is just so, captured by the habits that we have, you know, that kind of lead up to that moment or what can you maybe unpack a little bit? What's going on in our yeah. brains and what's that going moment? on there? Well, and uh, it probably demands talking about a related concept and that is willpower, okay. right? Willpower uh, simply defined is just the emotional energy that you need to do hard things, to resist temptation, mm -hmm. you know, even to make decisions actually. Um, and one of the big takeaways I got from the research on willpower, going back to some, uh, studies that were done 20 years ago um, is simply this willpower is a finite resource. Mm. You only have so much of it. We might like to think we can like hold out against temptation indefinitely or continue to do a very difficult thing for a long period of time, but we actually get weaker as we go. Mm. And it makes a lot of sense out of your experience. I think at least mine, you know, why after a hard day of work, I might be more likely to snap at my kids yeah. or to like eat poorly or whatever. Right. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, you've got this limited reserve of willpower and it's drained. Yeah. Well, when you're in that state and you're, you're, it's depleted um, and you don't have a healthy habit in place, man, you're, you're in trouble, right? That, that's when you're very vulnerable to temptation. And so it, it depends. I mean, because I think some people, like if you're faced with an unhealthy eating option, say, first thing in the morning when you're fresh, often you can resist it, right? Yeah. But later in the day when your willpower is low, and especially mm. if you don't have a habit of eating well, I, I know I'm, I'm probably harping too much on the eating, but we keep coming back to that. Um, then you're going to default to bad habits in, in that moment. Is that why, I mean, so late night snacking, you know, or even oh, like, yeah. you know, w watching too much TV or, or let's just get real. I mean, you're probably more likely to look at porn um, or drink right. too much at night. I mean, for one, because you're at least one reason might be because you have, you'd have very little to know willpower to resist these urges. Is that Exactly. Yeah. No. And I mean, I was talking to a group of pastors recently and one of them talked about how he was part of this like accountability group of other pastors. And one of them confessed that when he falls prey to lust, he is, he, he's found it's right after he's been at a conference where he's been speaking. And he was so perplexed by this because he's like, my goodness, like I'm supposed to be at my most spiritual basically. And I come back and fall prey to the sin. Uh, and then one by one, all of them were like, yeah, me too. Same experience. Well, and I'm not excusing that behavior, but at the same time, if you understand it in terms of willpower, you're putting out a lot when you're at a conference, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're exhausting that limited willpower supply, and then you come back from that, man, you're vulnerable to temptation. Yeah. Uh, I think we see it in scripture with Elijah, right? After the, defeating the prophets of Baal, he goes and cries in a cave. <laughs> and, and that's often, yeah. yeah, anyway, that's when you're, you're vulnerable. So here's the important thing, though, about willpower. If you're just relying on your willpower to do the right thing in any given situation, you're probably not going to do it. Hmm. And I love the way John Ortberg puts this. He says, um, uh, habits eat willpower for breakfast. Oh, wow. In other words, there are two people going into a situation. One's relying on his willpower mm -hmm. and the other one is, has healthy habits in place to, to help him respond in the right way. The guy, the habits guy, bet on him every time, wow. essentially.
Yeah. Because uh, habit, habits are powerful. So no matter how much willpower and the good news about willpower is it can grow. It can strengthen. It's like a muscle. Really? So when you do the right thing, it actually increases, which is good news because I think I have like naturally low willpower. <laughs> so that's good news. But it's never enough. You'll always run out. You need to pay attention to your habits as well. Does sleep affect that? Is that why, like, is your willpower tank filled up when you get a good, healthy, uninterrupted night of sleep? That's a huge part of it. It's funny because in the book, like, I, I don't say this in the book, but I've said it since. Um, all these tips, all these tricks, some of them are tricks, some of them are just kind of fundamental wisdom, I think, um, don't work without sleep, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, and I remember talking to the um, sociologist, Bradley Wright, and he said, if I wanted to decimate your willpower, Drew, I would, A, make you get in a fight with your wife, because interpersonal conflict depletes willpower. I'd make sure you got three hours of sleep the night before, mm. and I'd make sure you're hungry. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, I'm not inviting him to my house. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. Yes, we're, we're finite creatures, man, and all of that takes its toll. And so just being aware of when you're in those, those states and make sure yeah. you're not making decisions, make sure you're not... You're not going into temptation, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's crucial. Let, let's, do, let's deal with a couple specific examples, and I'd love for you to kind of coach us on how to get out of that. So let's just go straight for the porn, masturbation, whatever. Like somebody listening to this. Sure. I mean, let's just be honest. 60% of the people listening to this podcast are habitually using porn, if not you know, addicted to it. I would say probably 90-plus percent of them don't want to be. <laughs> Like they're like, I right. don't like this about myself. So there, there probably would be eager. Like, okay, how can I get out of this cycle that I'm in? Yeah, that's a big question. There's a lot to it. I'll try to touch on a couple points that I think are relevant. Um, one is to take precautions uh, against the behavior. So, I mean, if, if you're addicted to porn, you better have some software on your computer that's blocking it for you. Don't sit there and rely on your willpower, right? Uh, you got to have, uh, and I forget, I'm forgetting some of the names, but there's like Net Nanny or uh, Angel Eyes. Yeah, Coven or, Covenant Eyes is Co the one we have. Uh, yeah. Covenant Eyes, that's the one, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and some people go, well, that's legalism, man. I Should I just, you know, count on God? Uh, no, God's <laughs> giving you a brain. Uh, it's not legalism. It's just wisdom uh, to take those kind of, um, kind of preventative steps from falling prey in an area you know you're fundamentally weak. So that's the first thing. Second, make sure you have accountability. Uh, that maybe that's obvious, right? But And, and here's the, the key with accountability. You don't want people that are super saints that have never fallen prey to the sin that you deal with because hmm. then you're just going to feel like crap about yourself. Nor do you want people that are just like, ah, yeah, I do that all the time. It's not a big deal, right? Because then they're going to drag you down. It's sort of like if you're an alcoholic, you want to hang out with people in AA, but you don't want to hang out with the dude who's going on a bender every weekend, right? <laughs> um, so you want to find fellow strugglers that are making progress, that are finding victory, and that can keep you accountable, that can inspire you, that can encourage you. And then back to the habits thing, I don't want to beat this to death, but you got to pay close attention to your habits because they're often cues. A habit has three parts, right? A cue, the thing that triggers the behavior, the behavior itself, and then there's a reward. So what you want to do is be very sensitive to those cues. And maybe when you're discouraged, right? oh man, I get really discouraged or there's a person who kind of triggers me and I get into this bad place. And then the way I kind of like medicate that is jump online and look at porn. Mm. Um, so if you're doing that, you've got to find ways to short circuit that. You kind of perform surgery on the habit loop and you say, okay, whenever that happens, when I hit that cue, instead of going to this, I'm going to read my Bible or I'm going to pray for this person. Have something very concrete 
that you can replace that behavior with. And that, that's um, not so, just yeah. so that we, well, you're, you're and replace it with a habit, not just a momentary, oh, I want to look at porn. So I'm going to read Romans instead. Like it has to be more of a habit that in those moments when you're most likely to look at it, you already have a, a habit you've been putting in place. Right. Um, yes. But that, so this, it sounds like a catch 22 a little bit, like in order to, establish a habit that takes willpower, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, so it, there, yeah. there is just some raw, like, I want to do the right thing. Ah, I'm going to start this habit. You know, um, I mean, nobody can yeah, make and, you do it. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing about habits. It's almost impossible to, to create them out of the blue, just from scratch. Um, everything I've read indicates that the, the best way to create a, a new healthy habit is to replace an old one that is unhealthy, okay. which is great, right? So you think of someone who every time they go outside, they want to smoke a cigarette, Yeah. you know, or if they go outside in the morning, they just, oh man, I want to smoke a cigarette. Well, instead, start running, okay? Maybe that's your new thing. Mm. And then the reward used to be nicotine in your bloodstream. Now it's endorphins that you get when you run, right? So that's the, the way to, to think of these things. Now you're right. When you start a habit, you're expending willpower. Yeah. And that's why it's really crucial that you're very incremental in your goal Okay. For what you're trying to do, you're not trying to go out, for instance, run 10 miles the first day right, if you haven't right. run before, um, and that you only start one habit at a time. Yeah, This is why New Year's resolutions fail, right? People try like five different major behavioral changes to institute them all at once, and they got this limited reserve of willpower, and it's gone. Um, anyway, so yeah, but you're yeah. right. You know, And habits aren't like life hacks. They're not like tricks. They're hard because yeah. they take 30 to 66 days, depending on what you read. Um, to cement into place. Yeah. And for those, that first month or two, man, you're, you're uh, using a lot of willpower. It's unfamiliar. It's mm. novel. It's difficult. Uh, but if you can stick it out, it, it becomes, it gets easier as you go. Yeah. I remember reading your, what you said about new year's resolutions, plural. You said, those are, you're going to fail. Do a new year's resolution. Um, I think I had, right. ele- I think I had 11 new year's resolutions this year. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure I didn't keep any of them. Uh, so some of them were not like concrete. They were more just generalities, you know? And so, so we can right. argue whether I'm doing okay in, in some of those areas. But, uh, yeah, I, I read that. I was like, oh crap. I wish I talked to Drew before I <laughs> 11, man. That, that'd be a record even for me. I usually go like five or six, but I've never done them. In fact, they was, I, I, I labeled them raw resolutions. Like don't like, don't hold me to this. I'm just saying there's some general things I would maybe sure. like to kind of pursue at the times. Right. Which is like. I'm just setting myself up for failure, but all right. So, um, we, we did. So, so the porn thing, um, yeah, I think we covered it. Let's, let's do another, let's do, let's do alcoholism. Um, somebody, you know, is maybe drinking too much. Maybe they're enslaved to it, whatever they're out getting drunk, whatever. Um, and I, I think there's a difference between drunkenness and ensla- being enslaved to it. Like you can be enslaved to alcohol and never get right. drunk. You can get drunk periodically and not actually be enslaved to it. Just, Hey, you know, once a month you like to throw back a few, you know, uh, right? how, uh, if some, if somebody does have unhealthy habits in terms of alcohol addiction, what would your advice be to, to them? Would it be, I mean, very similar to yeah. the porn thing? I mean, yeah, it would, you know, and I should say this kind of a qualifier or caveat, you know, if you have, um, major addictive behaviors in your life, right. Even if it is porn mm-hmm. and it's not like kind of like this thing, like, Oh man, I, I look at it once in a while and I really want to get away from that. Or if it's like, you're, you're an alcoholic and you cannot cope without it. Mm-hmm. There may be things that go beyond the purview of, of this conversation that you need okay. to get a therapist, right? Uh, okay. you, maybe you have some childhood issues 
that, that need to be discussed, <laughs> uh, which yeah takes takes at least the conversation well beyond my expertise. But at the same time, I just think there are a lot of good things you can do. And one of the things I did actually when I was uh, researching for the book was look at addiction recovery programs. Hmm. So I'm just a fa- I'm fascinated by it because here are these people basically whose self control has been obliterated, right? If you're an addict, right? That's almost the definition of addiction is that you just, your, your volition's gone at that point, right? It's not like you're sitting there making bad choices. You're just enslaved to a certain um, substance or behavior that, that, and then you, you really need outside help. Um, and, and I looked at AA in particular, and I thought it was so fascinating because the first thing they do is confess their helplessness against the addiction, hmm. right? And it's so countercultural, I think, because, and of course, it was written a long time ago, the, the, the steps, because today I think we'd say, the first thing you need to do is admit how powerful you are and that you have everything within you to defeat this, right? <laughs> yeah. You'd give yourself some sort of like, I don't know, Dr. Phil pep talk or something uh, to, to psych yourself up to conquer this addiction. But the first thing they do is go, I'm powerless against this. And then the second thing they do is confess their dependence on a higher power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is so powerful again. And of course, they're talking in a general way about God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, they find a community of fellow strugglers, mm-hmm. right? And I talked to one guy, I remember he'd been clean, I don't know, 20 years or so. And yet every week, he's going into this basement in the gym and pulling out a metal chair and saying, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic, right? Because they acknowledge mm-hmm. that they're never strong enough to face this hmm. temptation on their own. Wow. So anyway, that's obviously great advice and that's the most successful program for alcoholics, yeah. but it applies to virtually any behavior you're dealing with, any right. destructive habit in your life. If you can kind of walk through some of those steps and I think they're very biblical, right? Yeah. That's your dependence on God, your helplessness, community, all of that. Let's, uh, can we leave behind the book? Because I, I well, not, well, let's go to a different book you've written. The one that I first encountered you was through X. Uh, X generation X Christian. Oh yeah. I was doing research for a book on discipleship that I wrote. I think about 14 people have read it. It's called go. Um, maybe now (laughs) I might make one more sale. It's actually one of my favorite. It's like my manifesto to what church canon should be. Um, and I feel like nobody even knows that I wrote it, but, um, (laughs) through that book, I read a lot of stuff by, I mean, you and Kinnaman and, um, Oh, who's that? Uh, church refugees. Um, probably all the same stuff you read for that book or, you know, keep in touch with just, just how people are just, especially younger people are in unprecedented ways, um, leaving the church. Um, right. can you, yeah. Can you give a quick overview of that phenomenon? Is this something new? Is it any different than every generation where young people kind of go and come back? Why are they leaving? Are there certain things the church is doing or not doing that is, causing, you know, 20 somethings to say, yeah, just not really into this anymore. Um, yeah. Help us diagnose this. Well, as far as your question about, is this, is this, well, a, are they leaving? Yes. Yeah. B, is this something that just happens in every generation in part? Yes. So if you're going to disengage from the church, it's not going to happen probably when you're 50 or when you're five, right. You don't have a choice at that point. It's probably going to happen when you're a young adult, right. Mm -hmm. When you get out from your parents' house and rules and then you have a choice, do I attend church? And often, because young people are so transient, they disengage from the church. But by and large, in past generations, they have come back. Mm-hmm. The unique thing about this generation, younger generation, is we're now seeing, like the millennials who are getting into their 30s now, they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. They're not automatically returning to the church as some people thought they would in mass. 
And part of what we've seen uh, is reflected in the rise of the nuns. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, yeah. people claiming to have no religion whatsoever. Okay. When I wrote my book, which is a few years old now, um, I remember the, the number of nuns in the younger set was 22%. 22% of people claimed to have no religion. That was astounding at the time because it had risen like from 20 years before. It was at 11%. So it like doubled. Oh, wow. Now, and I remember some people saying, you know what? That's just a fluke of statistics. It'll kind of float back down to that number. Well, the most recent studies I've seen is among the younger generation today, it's at about 34 to 36% now. Wow. So it has gotten much worse uh, since I wrote my book. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's astounding. And these are people not just presumably that are disengaged from the church, but claim to have no belief yeah. in any religion or God whatsoever. What's the cause? So why? Is, is, is there a clear diagnosis or is it complex? I mean... Right. And it's different in every case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you break it down and look at the reasons that, that some of these people claim to have no religion, the biggest um, a group within that 36% are people that I call drifters. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're angry atheists or even agnostics. They just kind of drifted away from it. Right. And for all intents and purposes, God's just not part of their life anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the majority. I think we tend to think of those angry atheists yeah. Right, that that read Dawkins books and go online and write angry screeds against God or whatever, but they 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 get more visibility. Um, but yeah, and then there are a lot of macro trends. I I would guess that are driving this, just kind of uh, the secularization of the West in general. Yeah, I mean we're nowhere near Europe, mm-hmm. but we're certainly kind of inching down that post-Christian path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of it. I think in the past there was a lot of social pressure like to identify as a Christian mm-hmm. just because it was considered the good thing to do. If you're a good person, of course you're a Christian. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm a Christian. My, my grandma was Baptist or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas today, especially in the place I live, the Northwest, or you go to the Northeast or any of the coasts, man, it's just not an assumption. In fact, it, there's a, there's a stigma often attached to identifying as a Christian. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. So anyway, I think that's part of it too. A lot of people who a generation ago may have just said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Today, that, yeah. they're being a little more honest about where they're at. I wonder, too, in my, I found the, everything you're saying, I found the exact same thing. I would even add um, that there could be, how do I say it? A, 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 an ecclesial, I'll put it in a fancy way to make myself sound smart, an ecclesiological <laughs> unattractiveness uh-huh. that used to work back in the 80s and 90s and in a post-internet generation just doesn't really work anymore. I mean, you said earlier, just to come full circle, that at the end of the day, people are looking for a tribe, a community to, to belong. And yep. in the megachurch era or pulpit, or let's just say church service-centered ecclesiology, where at the end of the day, most of the energy is put on sun, Sunday morning and... Right, you know, let's not, be honest. Yeah, yeah, you know, and in the 80s and 90s, that, that may have worked. Like, you can actually build and sustain a really big crowd that's given lots of money. Um, if you pull off a really good service, a great worship team, um, a good preacher, whether it's attractional or just clear or passionate, whatever. Um, and if you have a good children's program, then, you know, it's just, uh, you know, win all around. Um, but I feel like those types of ecclesiologies don't guarantee community. And I feel like, if anecdotal and I would say sociological evidence means anything, many Christians don't have a real deep, deep, addictive sense of belonging in their ecclesiological community. That's that's been my right. experience across the board. So, um, yeah. I, so, 
what what would keep them? I don't think a good polished church service is going to keep them, especially in an internet generation. When if you want to hear a good talk, message, teaching, it's not like well we will have to wait till Sunday morning. It's like well no, I can hear a thousand better talks and sermons just on my you know phone right now if I want right. to. They so, can listen to this podcast. Yeah, and, and yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people email me and say that this podcast is kind of their community. I'm like, thank you, but ah, no, yeah. yes, that's great. No, it's not, you know, like it's, it's talk about a mixed compliment. I yeah. know. Right. Um, and I get, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. Like, and I don't, yep. you know, anyway, um, do you think, so do you think that the church is doing, and that's a generalization, but the church broadly speaking has a way of going about church that may have attracted and kept people in the past, but now is just, it's just not going to work in a post-internet, post-Trump, post-9-11 kind of world. It's just com- almost completely different than, you know, the early 1990s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, there's kind of the macro trend of younger generation being incredibly disillusioned yeah. with and suspicious of institutions in general, right? Yeah. So whether it's government, I don't know, education, the corporate world, I mean, there's just, in, I think, unprecedented levels of distrust towards anything institutional. And there's not much, I mean, the church is pretty institutional in the minds of most young people, right? Yeah. So there's that kind of barrier already. And then I think you're right too, like when the, the with the whole church growth movement that launched out of Fuller in the 80s, I guess, 70s, 80s, um, and, and saw expressions with Bill Hybels at Willow Creek and, mm-hmm. and Rick Warren, great ministries. Um, but there was a high premium placed not only on Sunday morning, but on excellence in terms of production. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it, it worked. I think it, and I don't bash on that. I think it was a, a sort of contextualization that worked for the baby boomer generation. Um, and, but like one person said, I forget who this isn't original to me, but they said when an older generation walks into a church service that is slick and produced and excellent, they go, Wow they must be doing something right here. Younger person (laughs) walks in and sees that same thing and they go, there's corruption here. (laughs) That is so true. Right. How are they doing this? Why, you know, who's paying for this? And, and they're asking good, hard questions (laughs) about this, right? Who's who's being excluded. (laughs) Right. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of a cruel irony, but the thing that worked to reach people a generation ago is not only not effective anymore, but in some cases actually repels them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that, that, that's tough. Um, cause where one generation saw excellence, another one sees inauth- inauthenticity. Is that a word? Inauthenticity. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, it's definitely a challenge and I don't know, I don't have all the answers for sure, but I'll tell you what, when I, the people that I interviewed that had walked away, not only from the church, but the faith for the most part, despite the intellectual objections and hurdles, what was really going on in my estimation was the break often came in the context of relationship. Yeah that a bad experience with a youth pastor or a parent or whatever, and, and they walked away from the faith. And so if they're going to come back, it's going to have to happen in the context of relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not going to be that you put on a hot enough service that they're going to walk through the doors of a church. In, in my area of the country here, man, people just will not darken the door of a church. Right. No way. They don't wake up thinking like, oh, where am I going to go to church? Right. <laughs> it's not even on their radar. Yeah. So they, they, they have to have people that get into their world and connect with them. And that's kind of a slow process. Uh, to, to bring them into Christian community. Yeah. Drew, we're going to have to wrap things up. The The book, the, the main book we've been talking about is his most recent book. Wait, is it out yet? I didn't check that. It is. It is yeah, out. Yeah, no, it's been out for like, uh, oh, almost 
it, January. It oh, okay, out. okay. I think I got a yeah. copy of the pre-release copy last last fall. Um, so yeah, it's your future self will thank you. Secrets of self-control from the Bible and uh, brain science. And I, I would highly encourage you uh, to read Generation X Christian as well. I haven't yet read Yawning at Tigers. Was that your first? Was that your first one? Or that's uh... <laughs> that was actually my second one. That, I love that title. I don't even know what it means, you know, but the, I'd love it. The best part about that book, let me tell you, <laughs> I got all this weird tiger-themed paraphernalia. <laughs> I got tiger socks, a tiger uh, painting. Oh, it was awesome. awesome. It has nothing to do with tigers, by the way, but because yeah. of the title. I, I can, I can kind of sense where you're going to go. And I, I've been wanting to read that for a while now. So, uh, yeah, you, you've nudged me even further. So uh, where, where can people find you, your writings? Are you on social media? You got a website? Yeah, you bet. Um, I probably spend too much time on Twitter, so drop by there. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always logging onto that that place. Uh, and it's just my name, Drew Dick. Um, and then I have a website, too. Okay. Again, my name, Drew Dick, D-Y-C-K dot yeah. com. Uh, or if you're in the Northwest, stop by. We'll grab a coffee. We'll go to Powell's. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hang out. You got the good coffee. You got the good coffee and craft beer out there. In, we got in the, the good coffee. We got the good beer. We've yeah. got nature. Yeah. We got a lot of rain. Yeah. We got the coast. <laughs> it's a pretty cool place. Drew, thanks so much for being on the show. We'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This has been a fun conversation.